0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
1: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And one feature of the global economy that's fairly new for anyone under the age of 40 is inflation. I've been talking to the Italian economist Nurio Rubini, Dr. Doom himself, about the different forces that are driving prices higher in Europe and the US and what the effort to control inflation will do to the global economy. You can hear that chat in just a few minutes. But first we're going to Italy, a country once again cropping up in conversations about a possible crisis in the Eurozone. Now you don't have to worry, it's not happening yet, but there is a fear that as interest rates go up across Europe, that still very debt-laden economy will find it increasingly difficult to make the sums add up. So it matters to all of us if Italy can't grow fast enough to stay on top of its accumulated debt in the years to come, it's not going to grow much at all if it can't coax more of its people back into work. Here's Bloomberg's economy reporter in Rome, Alessandra Migliaccio.
2: Italy's job market is currently very complex and it doesn't easily allow you to return to work once you've exited. This is very discouraging and really quite sad. That was Beatrice Tarantino. She might sound harmless enough, but the governor of the Bank of Italy believes she represents one of the biggest threats facing the Italian economy. An army of people who neither have a job nor are looking for one. In early March, speaking in front of the country's economic elite in the gold-painted shareholders' hall of the Bank of Italy, Governor Ignazio Visco offered a long list of problems facing his country. But the most bleak was the 2.6 million people available for employment but not searching for jobs. That's more than the actual number of job seekers.
3: Adequate policies for planning migration flows, training and integration are lacking. The labor market participation rate is among the lowest in Europe, especially in southern Italy.
2: Those figures set Italy apart from all its European peers, even Spain, where there are more unemployed people, but almost all of them are actively seeking work. That means there's huge potential in the economy that isn't being unlocked. It also means productivity could improve, especially in the country's southern regions, where unemployment figures are often double those on the rest of Italy. In that same speech, Governor Visco said the country needs to find solutions, particularly in light of a population that is both aging and shrinking.
3: Overcoming the factors that hinder productivity growth has become even more necessary, given the demographic projections, which point to a downward trend in the labor force that can only partly be countered by an improvement in the migration balance and by an increase in labor market participation. Most recent projections show Uh, that over the next 15 years, the population aged 15 to 64 will fall by 13%, or about 5 million people, half of whom, in the south.
2: Unlocking that jobs potential trapped in the inertia of the Eurozone's third biggest economy is key to Italy's future prosperity. Some of the problem, the governor said, is schooling and a low-skilled labour force. According to Andrea Prencipe, professor of innovation management and rector of Lewis University in Rome, many people have obsolete skills and are not sure how to retrain themselves. He also believes young people often don't have the right mindset. They need to learn how to learn in order to face a rapidly changing world. I believe this is not just the, the usual
3: problem of market and demand. And also, the idea of throwing money at the issue would not address it fully. So, my understanding, and my proposal would be to rethink the way we do education, because since you know, the, the age of people will lengthen, we need to make sure that students and the foreign people will learn to learn new jobs. So,
2: a shift from content to methods to learn new jobs and invent New ones, or at least craft them according to the, the vagaries of the market. Adapting to the changing labor market has been a challenge for Beatrice, a 49 year old who has struggled to find a job since losing hers at an insurance company in Rome during job cuts in 2018. Currently helping a friend with childcare, she says she may try to return to the fray of seeking work later this year. After the pandemic struck, it got harder to find work at my skill level, and in the end I ended up helping out a friend with her kids, so I wasn't able to get back into the job market. It's a pity, because I have other abilities and think it's a waste of both potential for me, because I have a great desire to work, and for the country. Millions of people flock to Italy at this time of year to enjoy la dolce vita. Whether it's clothes, the cars, the food, probably no country has done a better job of exporting its culture to the rest of the world. But if it can't find a way to sell its economy to its own citizens, the next few years are going to be bleak indeed. In Rome, I'm Alessandra Migliaccio for Bloomberg News.
0: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
1: We have a few minutes now to discuss Italy's plight with Rosa Maria Bitetti. She's an economist and lecturer in public policy at Rome's Luis University and an advisor to the OECD. Rosa Maria, thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, we heard there about the army of people in Italy who are of working age but are not looking for work. Now, as you know, there has been a lot of discussion in the US and in Europe about the so-called Great Resignation. I mean, how much of this Italian problem is related to the COVID pandemic and how much is due to more homegrown issues in Italy?
4: Thank you, Stephanie, for having me and for discussing this very interesting topic. The Great Resignation Wave is something that is happening uh, in Italy, but the problem of of high inactivity in the labour market is a long-standing problem and it's quite structural. But if you unpack this very large number in Italy, the most recent data I got from 2019, so well before covid and we notice that the largest per- percentage, like 38.3%, is people in education. And you will think that, that a lot of people study in Italy. But then if you then look at variables about tertiary education attainment or uh, PISA results uh, for high school, it's actually not the case. Italians don't obtain more degrees than other countries. It's just that it takes longer. One of the reasons is that school age is later and you finish uh, the legal age of studying after. And um, also university, the way it's structured, it encourages staying more year in education. And so I think there is a structural problem with the education system. The second larger percentage of people who are not actively searching for a job uh, in Italy, it's because of family reasons. And it's striking. Italy, I think, is the lowest female labor market participation in Europe. And um, as a recent mom uh, discussing with moms as well as a scholar, I realized very deeply that it's strongly related to the fact that welfare uh, in Italy strongly relies on privately family provided uh, solutions. We have one of the lowest provision of uh, childcare services. So getting a kid, especially if you live in the south of uh, Italy, really kicks you out of the market.
1: Italy is known for having an ageing population and that obviously affects the workforce directly because you have lots of people retiring. But uh, I guess there's also an indirect effect because there's a lot of old people to look after.
4: Yes, there are uh, more people to look after. So uh, the elderly who used to help families still do it a lot in childcare now become part of the responsibilities of families, and that means usually of women that have to require more flexible contracts and take less uh, less hour, uh, bring less hour into the job market, and that usually makes it much harder for them to find the proper location, and find uh, sustainable um job
1: you and i have both um, even just to negotiate this uh, this meeting we've both had our family neg- obligations to to navigate so we understand that pretty well but does the government understand it and do people like the governor of the bank of italy understand that uh, how you could address this need for for childcare? it sounds like more than anything
4: So Italy is lacking behind on on provision of uh, childcare services. So, and that's especially true in southern part of Italy. And this is for more, uh, let's say, anecdotal discussion and uh, some readings that I, by being a mom and talking with other moms, and even when they can place their kid in childcare, which usually, if public, uh, uh, close at four p.m that requires them to get a part time or a quite flexible job. And that's not the HR culture in Italy, getting flexible jobs and not, I don't think even the COVID pandemic and all the work from home uh, solution has changed that. And also uh, it's a regulatory issue. Uh, we, have a, we are a country with very high uh, taxes on income. So for somebody who hires uh, a person hiring, a, a single person or two part-time it's very different. It's a rigid market uh, with very small firms so usually uh, part-time jobs are not offered very easily. Even though recent governments have tried to improve the all active labour market services with this di collocamento, hiring people to help unemployed people to get jobs, the results are quite uh, uh, striking for their ineffectiveness. So I will tell you this this joke when I was younger my dad told me you should go and register to the Unemployment office and there was uh, okay. I mean, I don't really know why but if you say this is something I just finished school I should go there. I went there and I told them uh, about myself So what's your, your qualification? And I said well, I'm an economist and they were like uh, I don't know what to do with that. That was he just write it down and <laughs> I, I hear that. I hear <laughs> I say, that a lot. Mean, <laughs> <laughs> So that's how they were. I told at the end. Yeah, well, you can say that I can make cake if there's a job opening for like that. So they're very, very ineffective uh, for uh, this kind of jobs.
1: Well, it sounds like you get a particular perspective as an economist from also living some of these situations. Uh, but I know we're going to run out of time because your own child is going to be coming back to the house. So let me just ask you, for people listening, we often talk about because Italy has so much debt and people are starting to talk about, well, maybe uh, it'll be uh, increasingly difficult for Italy to to. to still service its debt, pay the interest on its debt, because interest rates are going up. I don't want to get into all that. But if there's not enough people willing to work who are inactive in Italy, how does that hurt Italy's economic situation and potentially make it harder for the government to deal with higher interest rates? What's the cost for the economy and for growth?
4: Well, I always think uh, as a GDP, as the income of a family, of a very large family, if my income keeps shrinking, uh, and uh, of course, uh, I will not be able to repay my mortgage. So uh, this is pretty much the situation in Italy. But I just want to make one point. I really don't think that Italian people who are inactive don't want to work. I think they are not in the position to work. I think that the Italian economic system is not able to accommodate and give them a, a job. So they don't even bother registering to the unemployment office. So, because uh, they know that it's not going to be there and they try informal ways and they don't get there. And this is not sustainable in the long term because basically you're taking off all this energy and creativity and ability and getting get stale and cold and they're not going to be able to contribute to what this country needs to, uh, go back, to go back to a future of growth. And you know, Italy has been stagnating for decades now. And the only solution is from the people. So we have to find a solution. I think that our political leaders need to find a way to understand what in our institutional framework is letting all this energy and creativity be chained and wasted instead of richly used we mentioned
1: it at the end of the piece because it's it's an interesting puzzle for people in the rest of the world that if you look, there's so much about Italian culture and food that has taken over the world, you know, our cappuccinos and uh, uh, we aspire to kind of Italian standards of design and the cars and the dolce vita and everyone wants to go there on holiday. And yet somehow the country has not managed to capture the benefits of that global success in all its ideas. Isn't part of this also about companies seeing that potential that you're talking about, that's sort of on the sidelines, not able to be playing an active part in the economy? Shouldn't, shouldn't some of these fantastic Italian companies be be finding a way to employ these people?
4: I think that there is definitely a weakness in the industrial uh, infrastructure of Italy and many firms are too small to be updated, usually family-run, so they don't have any managerial, real managerial qualification and uh, that affects growth, of course. But then uh, as policy analysts, you have to step back and ask why. Italian firms are not competing anymore, are not growing anymore like they used to do in the 60s and in the boom area. And as you may, as you might know, Italy is one of the few countries in which salaries are getting smaller instead of increasing over time. And this is not because each worker is paid less. Just because uh, Italian firms used to be on the edge of the frontier of international competition, now they are shifting to business sectors that are less attractive, less innovative and can provide lower wages. So definitely I think there's a lacking of uh, entrepreneurial and managerial and ability to grow. You were making the example of the cappuccino, but the Italian style coffee has been made very popular in the world by Starbucks not by an Italian company, who then went back to to Milan and built a museum of uh, coffee. But that's pretty much it. It's very beautiful to be on vacation. It seems like cannot be working on her own. Thank you
1: so much, Rosa Maria. That's been wonderful.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com techsf.
1: Now something else that Italy has been quite good at exporting to the rest of the world is economists. Mario Draghi was an export that went home. But Nero Rubini still roams the world and is probably almost as famous for his gloomy but often prescient analysis of what's going on in the world. I had a conversation with Nuriel El Dottor Destino, at the Qatar Economic Forum the other day. Here are the highlights. We are seeing and experiencing something we haven't experienced, at least in many of the developed economies, for a long time. Inflation, significant inflation. And we're using a phrase or a word that we haven't used also for a long time. Stagflation. So Nuriel You're not always known for your optimism about the global economy, but listening to an interview you gave this morning, you seem not just long-term gloomy, but short-term gloomy. You think we're headed inevitably for a recession. So I guess my first question to you is, is a hard landing now inevitable? And if so, when did we go past the point of no return? When did you think, oh, this isn't gonna end well?
5: Um, well, people like myself were old enough to remember the 1970s when you had two major oil shocks, the war in '73 between Israel and Arab states, and then in '79 the Islamic revolution in Iran that led to oil spike in oil prices, high inflation, and recession. And I think unfortunately this time around we have uh, both demand factors and supply factors that are causing stagflation and high inflation. On the demand side, of course, we had loose monetary and fiscal policies during COVID, with excess savings that now are now leading to pent-up demand. But there were a series of negative supply shocks. Uh, first, the impact of COVID, lockdown, reduction of supply of labor, global supply chain problems. But this year, we had also two other negative supply shocks, the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine, rising energy prices, food, fertilizers, and industrial metals, and now the zero-COVID policy of China is leading to slowdown of growth of China and further bottlenecks on the global supply. So we have a situation similar to the 70s, excessive aggregate demand and negative supply shocks. Now, central banks hope that they can raise rates just enough to slow down the economy, to bring back inflation to 2%. But the history of the last 40 years suggests that whenever, at least in the U.S, inflation is above five percent, and right now it's eight and a half. And when unemployment is below five percent, right now it's three and a half, any attempt by the Fed to essentially raise rates to fight inflation causes a hard landing rather than a soft landing. That's why my baseline scenario right now is of a hard landing for the U.S, for the eurozone, for the U.K and most advanced economies.
1: Well, I was going to ask you quickly about that. So as far as you're concerned, the recession that we will see in the US will inevitably be followed by or come with a recession elsewhere?
5: Well, it's gonna be followed by a recession elsewhere for two series of reasons. First of all, when the US sneezes, the rest of the world gets a cold. The US is large enough that what happens economically and also in terms of financial markets in the US, that affects the global economy. Two, the same factors that are leading to recession in the U.S. are occurring also in the Eurozone, Europe, and the United Kingdom. If anything, actually, I would say Europe is more exposed to Russia in terms of energy. Europe is more exposed to the slowdown of China, given trade with China. The euro is falling in value, and that's inflationary. And the recovery of Europe was more dynamic than the United States, so in some sense, Europe... Eurozone and UK are as fragile, if not more fragile, than the United States.
1: We have some understanding about what the Fed's going to do, but would you say that Europe potentially has more or less room in terms of the central bank response? I mean, they don't face the same kind of demand issue.
5: Well, in terms of um, levels of inflation rates, uh, the levels in the Eurozone right now are as high as the United States. uh, in the UK, it's even worse than that. Among advanced economies, the only one that has uh, much lower inflation is still Japan. That explains why the BOJ policy is uh, very different. And it's true that the nature of inflation in Europe might be slightly different. More exposure to energy in Russia. Uh, more of headline inflation rather than core because of that. Slightly less strong wage uh, dynamics. Uh, more supply shocks rather than aggregate demand shocks. But in a world where you have uh, this stagflationary shock, whether you are the Fed, the ECB, the BOA, SMB, RBA, or you name it, you are in trouble because whenever you have these stagflationary shocks, inflation is higher, growth is lower. If you care about inflation and not the anchoring inflation expectation, you have to exit and normalize sooner and faster but that increases the risk of a hard landing. And if instead you care also about economic growth and you normalize more slowly, then the risk is that you're going to have a de-anchoring of inflation expectation. And whether the shock is supply or demand, in some sense, doesn't matter. Even in the presence of a supply shock, like we learned from the 70s, if you don't fight inflation, inflation expectation gets de-anchored, and you end up with stagflation, not just with inflation, but also recession. And I would say uh, the ECB is as much in a pickle as the Fed, given the exposure to Russia, given the exposure to China, given the more dynamic recovery, given that the euro is falling in value and therefore you're going to have more important inflation. So the problems are similar.
1: And when you think about the sort of global knock-on effects of this, or we would call the the spillovers, we had years after the global financial crisis where we talked about currency wars, and the game in currency wars was to depreciate your currency and try and import some inflation because inflation was too low. What's the risk now, or how much are we already seeing the reverse of that, the stronger US in effect trying to export inflation through a stronger dollar?
5: Yeah, a stronger dollar implies that inflation is higher in Europe, inflation is higher in other advanced economies, but more importantly, inflation is also much higher in emerging markets. We've spoken about advanced economies, but in some sense, the situation of emerging markets is more difficult. Of course, you have to make a caveat. There are some emerging markets that are energy and or commodity exporters. Those are doing well, like in the region. Uh, there are some emerging markets that have stronger macroeconomic fundamentals with lower inflation. But, you know, the typical EM that is net commodity importer now is facing raising rates in the United States with weakening of their currencies that leads to higher inflation and with higher borrowing costs. Uh, it has, in terms of trade shock, because especially in Asia, but also in many other emerging markets, they are net commodity importers. And for them, the rise in energy, food, fertilizing, industrial metal is a major economic shock. Of course, if you are in very poor countries, you get to the point in which they have to worry about hunger, if not famines, like in sub-Saharan Africa. And the third shock for emerging markets is this slowdown of China that is now significantly also affecting negatively, especially economic growth in Asia that is connected to the global supply chains of of China. So you got the Fed shock, you get the dollar shock you get the terms of trade shock, you get the China shock. So that's why uh, folks at the World Bank and IMF say uh, for many emerging markets or poor countries, this is not a, a COVID recession, it's a near depression that they have to worry about.
1: Now, Nouria, we're going to run out of time, but you have spoken quite a lot about crypto in the past. And I was interested, given it's been a pretty turbulent ride for a lot of the cryptocurrencies in the last few months, how, how are you looking at the... Is it the fut- was it a fad, or is it the future, or are you changing your view?
5: <clears throat> well, from the peak of last November, Bitcoin has lost about uh, 70% of its value. Other cryptocurrencies have lost 80 to 90% of them. You know, the study suggests that uh, 90% of all the ICOs were scams of one sort or another. I think, however, the most important point is that calling cryptocurrencies currencies is a misnomer. Anybody who knows about uh, monetary theory and policy, like his Excellency, knows that for something to be money or currency it has to be unit of account, nothing is a price in Bitcoin. It has to be a scalable um, a means of payment. With Bitcoin, you can do seven transactions per second. With the Visa network, you can make 50,000. It has to be a stable store of value. Here you have an asset that can go up and down in value overnight by 10, 20 percent. Not even crypto conferences accept Bitcoin as a means of payment or a store of value. And it has to be a single numeraire so you can price the relative price of goods and services. If every good and service is a different token, it's like going back to barter. You cannot even see the relative price. So calling them... Currencies is really a misnomer.
1: But if it was a misunderstanding, what's happened in the last few months? People, will people come to their
5: senses, do you think? Well, uh, there was a huge bubble. There was a fear of missing out. Uh, there were Ponzi schemes. Many people have bought at their peak and now they've lost uh, a fortune, whether in cryptocurrency, crypto assets, DeFi, and so on. I think that in this space, if you want stuff that is going to be not vaporware, you need to find uh, asset back. Uh, tokens of one sort or another that are backed by real assets or financial assets. Otherwise, those that are based on essentially vaporware are going to be disappearing over time.
1: I hesitate to ask this final question to you, Nuriel, but I was looking at my notes, and the last time we spoke, which was more or less in the middle of COVID, you uh, were predicting that there would be uh, some inflation coming out of COVID um, that would cause policy mistakes, and you would then have a 10-year depression in most of the world economy, give or take. Are we more or less on course for that, or can we expect something
5: slightly better? Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly worry about stagflation in the short run, Uh, but I think that uh, the factors that might lead into mediocre growth are not just short-term. If you look at medium-term, there are a whole series of other negative supply shocks. We have deglobalization and protectionism. We have reshoring of manufacturing from low cost to high cost. You have aging of populations. You have uh, restriction to migration. You have this decoupling between U.S. and China. You have global climate change, in many channels, is taxationally reducing growth and increasing cost of production. You have, unfortunately, recurrent pandemics. You have cyber warfare. You have a backlash against income and wealth inequality. You have the weaponization (laughs) of the U.S. dollar. These are all factors that are not short term, that over time may reduce growth, increase cost of production, and being stagflationary. So, unless we address this issue, we could end up not with a mild recession, but something more like a depression with inflation, meaning a deeper stagflationary debt crisis. Yes.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Doom, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, do please rate the show if you like it. And check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. You can also follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Sadi and Young Young, with special thanks to Nuriel Rubini, the Qatar Economic Forum, Rosa Maria Bitetti and Alessandra Miliaccio. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics.